You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. So welcome, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the CEO and co-founder with Impetus Digital. For those of you who don't know us, we have built some of the best in class, asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We have worked with life science companies from across the globe over the past 13 years to help them with everything from creating virtual advisory board meetings, um, virtual investigator groups, publication teams, medical education, and everything in between. But more importantly, at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations, we can work with leading edge thinkers, digital provocateurs, and healthcare thought leaders to all work to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. But it can't just end there. We have to sustain these conversations. This is precisely the reason we created the Insight platform. So we can actually engage payers, uh, allied healthcare providers, uh, other interested stakeholders, physicians, so that we can work to collectively move policy, collaborate, communicate. This is gonna be a good portion of what we're gonna be talking about with Arena today. So um, I am really thrilled to have one of these thought leaders at the table. This is Dr. Verena Volter. She's a double board certified internist and oncologist with really deep expertise, both as a clinician researcher in the hospital setting, as well as a business leader in the biotech industry. Her signature expertise lies in building and facilitating collaborative public-private partnerships in healthcare. She has successfully contributed to numerous projects in the realm of direct patient care, research and drug development, commercialization of new products, and market access strategies for innovative medicines. Um, Verena is extremely passionate about patients and people. She deeply cares for collaborative approaches in healthcare that enables new forms of value generating partnerships. And we're really gonna dig into that today. She is also the founder and managing partner of 5P Healthcare Solutions Company. It's a consulting firm that aims to foster co-creation of collaborative solutions between the five Ps, those being patients, providers, pharma, payers, and policymakers. She is also the author of It Takes Five to Tango, From Competition to Cooperation in Healthcare. Welcome, Farina. So happy to have you at the table today. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you for this very generous introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, it was wonderful, and I was just commenting earlier that I read your book, and it's phenomenal, and uh, we're going to want to dig into this a little bit. Before we go into this, you have a very decorated background, an extremely intriguing career trajectory, 
going from, you know, medicine into becoming an entrepreneur and, you know, and getting into the consulting space. Can you give us a little bit of a background um, of how you landed where you are today? Yeah, I think my, my red thread since my kind of this whole span of very varied different roles is, is the focus on the patient and my passion for the patient. Um, so I think I, can you still hear me because my audio? I can, yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Um, so I think that's really the red thread through my, through my medical career, I should say. So I always felt like a doctor, even my 12 years in industry. Um, I was, you know, um, lucky enough that my employers, Celgene and Novartis, uh, really felt that medical was an important piece at the table and always let me feel like I'm still a physician um, doing my job and helping patients. So I have to say that's the red thread. I don't feel any different now than 30 years ago. And as an entrepreneur, of course, that's very different because you're kind of, it's nice when you want to take vacation and you ask your boss, can I take vacation? And you ask, hey, Verena, can I have vacation? <laughs> so you're like, <laughs> uh, you know, you're N equal, your team is N equal three, me, myself, and I. <laughs> and uh, very different from Novartis, which was 120,000 people enterprise or Celgene, which at the end was 7,000. So just to be very small is, is a very nice complimentary experience. So I absolutely love what you're doing in your consulting firm, Verena. And again, you wrote an entire book on this. And we're going to kind of peel the various layers to these concepts. A large part of what you believe in is coordination and collaboration. And again, it's the lifeblood of what we do at Infidus. But I really believe, you know, and this is actually one of the reasons we found each other. But I'd love to kind of dig in a little bit to those core people who need to be collaborating. Um, and I really just kind of want to, first of all, start off with this idea of why do you believe that it takes more than two to tango? Yeah, I think uh, I would even take it a step further or one step further back is because mostly in the silos in our healthcare ecosystem, people think only of themselves. So they think it only takes one to tango. They think, well, I decide, you know, I'm in pharma, I have all the bargaining power so I can decide. The payers thinks the same thing. It's like, well, I'm holding the budget. I can decide. The policymaker says and the lawmaker, well, I'm the only one writing the laws and the regulations, which is true. Uh, the doctor says, well, nobody's going to tell me how I should treat a patient. I have like my professional independence and they really don't like when people tell them what to do. And the patients, of, of course, are kind of the weakest in this whole chain of bargaining power. And they're like left in the air and more often than not totally forgotten about, which is basically uh, kind of absurd because we seem to have lost the focus on our customer. So I think that fragmentation and silo is really one of the essence um, of our problems in healthcare, that we think we're alone and we do not realize that nine times out of 10, the solution to our problem lies outside of our own business, our own P, our own expertise. So it takes at least two to tango. But if you think about it in healthcare, and that's how I describe it, I believe also in the book is like, the patient is receiving care, the doctor delivers the care, pharmaceutical mostly kind of develops the new medicine and the new care, the payer pays for the care, and policy, because it's very regulated, it's about human beings, has to set the right standards, ethical standards. So if you think about it, none of the five can operate in isolation. Not when yeah, things yeah. are well, and certainly not when things are broken, which they are in many parts of our society. So, so much of what you are all about is collaboration, breaking down silos and creating those bridges. Uh, you've also stated very eloquently in the book, 
around how the balance has been broken. Um, there is this um, tenuous issue around balancing innovation with the whole essence around affordability. Tell us a little bit about what you speak about, what you consult on around awareness, making people aware of the interconnectedness of this very complex, as you call it, the hyper-complex ecosystem, um, and getting people around thinking of innovation systems thinking. Tell us a little bit about your whole realm around awareness. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. And thank you also for this platform and others. And I know that's where we, as you said, we join forces in that idea of dialogue and conversations and we, we must work together, right? We can't do it alone because of that intimate interdependency. And I'm always saying, well, if healthcare would be one company, there would be one boss deciding, but we are not. We are sitting in five different independent like legal entities almost, but nobody is telling the others or has the authority to tell the other what to do. And so the broken balance really comes into play. And I guess everybody, even on the line here or anywhere reading the book or thinking about healthcare has a story to tell on where things don't go well. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things that go well. We have phenomenal progress in medicine. And I think this is the balance you're, you're alluding to is like, how can we maintain that great progress in medicine, great innovation has saved zillions of lives and keep it affordable. But however, right now that balance is broken. We see it with uh, out of pocket uh, expenses for patients. We see it in health premiums for patients. We see it for pharmaceuticals, how tough it is to keep returns on investments. It's really the competition is very high. We see it for payers, their budget is skewed. They're saying, well, my budget, let's say is only 10 million uh, in a given country, in a small country. How can I pay for life-saving gene therapy, which costs 2 million? But however, that you know, life is gonna be saved. So it's kind of, what is it worth to save 60 years of a human life? What is it worth? Is it, is it worth 2 million or more? I don't know. So I think all these conversations are so deep and so deeply complicated. They can only be solved in the common conversation, you know, even with society. And uh, even, you know, it's election time in many countries. It's like with the parties we elect. It's like, what is the culture we want? What are our priorities in our society? And is healthcare a priority? And how do we want to go about it? There are so many amazing things that we have learned as a society, as a culture, as a global ecosystem with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And as we're just kind of emerging, although I use that word loosely because you don't know what's going to happen in four months, but as we all try to emerge out of this slightly disastrous situation, there's silver linings in it. And certainly there's been a lot of learning around collaboration, acceleration of disruption digitally, of being able to accelerate timelines, changing the way we do regulations. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the sort of the, the, the new thinking around the virtual virtuous cycle of investment versus the vicious cycle of like waste and inefficiency. Um, and talking a little bit maybe about that, the example you used in your book on, on, on the thalidomide example of how academia worked with, you know, uh, with uh, uh, private corporations sort of speaking, uh, you know, a lot to the cycle of investment. Yeah, thank you. And maybe just for the for the listeners and audio uh, audience. Um, so usually it takes like the, the, the number one, 10 and a thousand is probably a good benchmark. So it usually takes for one product to get 
from the bench, from the lab to the patient, it takes about 10 years or even more, and it takes about over a billion US dollars to do so. So that's kind of the frame we're looking at. If we look at COVID and the at least four vaccines that were developed in less than 12 months, because I think many people don't realize or the lay public don't even know that this is unprecedented in mankind. We have never done that before. And that was only possible because of very tight alignment between public and private partnership and the 5P cooperation behind a common goal. I think this is what COVID helped us to do. We all saw the same common goal. And so the question is, outside of a public health crisis or any kind of emergency, how can we find that common goal? that common purpose. And if you uh, you mentioned the thalidomide story and broader than that, the cell gene story, um, for some of those who don't know, who really developed new medicines based on thalidomide um, for some of the very rare heme cancers, hematological cancers. And that was actually done, same thing, through a very close collaboration between doctors, researchers in academia, so largely in the public setting, and the private setting being Celgene as a company or um, other kind of, that is just one example for thalidomide and Celgene, but we have many others with, uh, with, with Roche or Novartis or other companies who have very successfully partnered in drug development with academia and physicians and patients for that matter. So there are many, many examples where actually successful life-saving medicines have been developed in that joint collaboration. And I think for all the good things that happen, we don't talk about it enough. So not everything is bad. The question is how can we perpetuate and copy those things that work well, talk about it, spread the word. And I think that's why we're doing this, spread the word. But I think um, I think in terms of thalidomide um, that was branded as Contagan in the sixties and was so-called promoted as a safe sleeping pill for pregnant women, and then led to the disastrous malformation of babies with missing limbs. And then years later, it was actually the biological and science research discovery that led to say, well, thalidomide must do any, something on blood vessels and, and genesis of new blood vessels. And that is a problem in some of the cancers. So how can we connect the dots? Mm -hmm. And connecting these dots was done between doctors and researchers in the clinics with some leaders um, in, in the pharmaceutical space. Yeah, it's a beautiful example, and I absolutely love it. And I really love this idea of the virtuous cycle, because again, it's painting the positive picture on collaboration as opposed to always talking about distrust and, you know, us against them. And we hear this all the time between all of those silos that you talked about. A core premise behind this collaboration and cohesion really has to do with this concept of value-based healthcare. We hear this buzzword all the time, it has a bit of a cliche, cliquey sound to it. A lot of times it's just using it in conjoint with the word patient centricity. So we talk the talk without necessarily walking the talk. Tell us a little bit about what value-based modeling looks like, especially in this multi-party collaboration concept that you bring in your book. Yeah, I usually cite the example of actually a family member uh, in her 80s happened what happens often fell and broke her hip so what happens is you go to the hospital you get surgery often you get a hip replacement and then you're released so the hospital gets paid and the doctor gets paid the surgeon gets paid for um, that hip replacement and but nobody actually asks three six or nine months later can that patient actually walk again mm 
In my case, unfortunately, the patient cannot walk again. They're actually worse off than they were before with a life quality of life, which is really, really impaired. So what value-based healthcare does is the payment and the reward for everybody, for patient and provider. And if you spin it further to drug development, also pharmaceutical and the payers would be based on the outcome and the results that matter to patient. That's why we say patient centricity. And that's why we say value-based because the value in this case is actually not in this case. If you go to a business school outside of healthcare under other industry, hospitality, travel, banking, real estate, it's always about the results that matter to customers and consumers. But somehow in healthcare, we don't look at it this way. But so that's all what it is. And I agree, value-based healthcare either is for people is a buzzword and they're annoyed by it, or it's people who say, what the heck is this? Never heard about it. But the middle ground seems to be like missing in walking the talk. So it is really about rewarding, changing radically our incentives system. Because I think that's the essence to our broken system right now, because we reward volume products and procedures and quantity at large, and we do not reward quality and results that matter to patients. Absolutely. Um, you also discuss a lot around playbooks. People can get very fundamentally focused on their workflow, their automaticity around how they habit stack, what they do in a workday, what they don't, and everything else just kind of falls off the wayside because it's just not part of, of how they do mm -hmm. things. So integrating into people's workflow or creating a, a workable playbook is really essential if you want to institute collaboration as part of the, the, um, the mindset of how people are working in these different silos or, or these, um, these five Ps. So you speak a lot around the idea of around doing things like commitments, fostering communication, sharing interests. Tell us a little bit about these core tenets of, of what should be part of the playbook for collaboration? I think it is that that last word that you said um, is the interests. And so another word for interests, because it sounds a little kind of um, too technical almost, it's like the needs or also the pressures that people are under. And if we look at uh, the five Ps, so let's say a pharmaceutical company is negotiating with a payer and an insurance or a doctor is uh, or provider is negotiating with their local lawmaker or policy uh, maker or a patient with the insurance. It's always about, do we actually understand each other, what each other's needs are? And nine out of 10 times we don't. What we do, we fall back into positions and we defend our position. And that is usually, and that is linked to our fee for service system which is very transactional it's like well i do that surgery for you and i you know you pay me for it or a third party pays for it and that's kind of our deal so it's very short-sighted it's transactional and what the interest-based playbook uh, of seven principles or seven steps um, entails or opens new doors because you can discuss around additional options of solutions that we find that you cannot find if you insist on your position so, and on your opinion, for example, we're all very opinionated and that's the culture in the Western world we were brought up. Um, so it's really breaking into new territory. One comment I wanna make um, that you alluded to uh, in the beginning of, of your question is, how can we carve out time for teams to come up with that 
co-creation mode and that kind of, because it takes time to figure out what are your interests? What are the pressures you are under? You know, what, what common ground can we find so that both your interests and my interests are met? That takes time. In the current fee-for-service like pressure to produce environment, it is impossible to do so. And that's why me, many people reject and say, well, this whole value-based healthcare stuff anyway doesn't work. It doesn't work in my environment because I need to produce, to produce, to produce. So basically the examples I'm citing in my book are all examples where you have both a top-down framework where the decision makers, be it the head of the hospital, be it the head of the insurance, be it the local politic, political leader uh, in healthcare, joins a grassroots and bottom-up culture. This is where the needle moves on healthcare. And this is where all the projects have that in common. You need the leadership that sets the tone on culture and behavior and carving out that time and say, guys, you, my employees, I give you a day a month. I'm just making this up. A day a month where I expect you to brainstorm and think about what you can do differently. And then it takes the bottom up. Everybody think about, well, in my role of responsibility, what is it I would love to do? And who else can I call up tomorrow to discuss this? And this is how all these projects have started. Absolutely. It's such a great thing for anybody who has ever tried to create an institute change. Going from the bottom up only fails and going from yeah. the top down also fails. So right. what an interesting way of hitting it from both sides of the candle and, and having it meet in the middle. And so I think it's absolutely true and so, so relevant. When we talk about opportunities for improvement, we talked a lot about patient centricity. I think patient centricity has really spun into an accelerated place of understanding and inc inclusion since COVID-19 because we've had to. So in your opinion, what is this new realm that we're in around patient centricity? What is the patient center of now? Is it just drug discovery? Is it the way we administer health? What does it actually mean in the day-to-day -day lives of all of the stakeholders we're talking about? Yeah, and I think for me, that is a super segue to digital, which is you know part of what you do at Impetus Digital and that I describe in my book in chapter four, because I say value-based healthcare, yes, but digital, and then you spoke about the multi-party collaboration playbook. So digital is really that, connecting element to make it possible. Because if we go back to value-based healthcare patient centricity, that has existed, has been described for over 20 years. And then the, the cynics say, well, it has existed for 20 years. It doesn't work because look at it, it hasn't worked. And some of it because we didn't have the digital means to process huge amount of data, patient data, outcomes data, and have the analytics to actually make sense out of this flow of data. So now, and you could say, well, digital has existed for 20 years as well, which is true, but healthcare is a very conservative environment and we take just longer than anybody else to realize <laughs> what modernism holds for us. So I think this is the thing through COVID, it has propelled digitization and digitalization in healthcare, which is kind of a positive. And so I think it really is through digital that empowers patients with, let's look at our smart you know, watches and other smart devices we have. Many people have um, smartphones. So all of these are elements that actually empower patients. And, and I think it also leads a lot to actually walk the talk on value-based healthcare because you can actually um, 
carve out inefficiencies through, for example, if I'm suffering from high hypertension and high blood pressure and my doctor's appointment is every three months, but actually the things happen in between the three months with my chronic condition. So I can measure my blood pressure myself, I can take my pills, but maybe through my new device now, I can automatically transfer my data, my blood pressure data to the provider and they can give me quick feedback on, hey, why don't you try this? Why did you try that? In between these, in this three months in between visits. So all of a sudden, you know, you need less visits because you're more efficient in between. And I think all of these things give a sense to the patient to empower and own their own health and work as a partner and not be so transactional hierarchical. And it's the, the good doctor who tells me what to do and I believe everything they say, et cetera. But it doesn't, these old style didn't really empower patients. So I think this is just one example, but I think if you spin it further, hospitals now are getting more digitalized uh, called smart hospitals. And I think in the future, patients really become, and in the future, I mean, it's happening today, but more so in the future, patients really become consumers in the positive sense that they own their health and they will make choices based on what and who delivers value to them. So they will choose the doctor at the hospital and the insurance and the health plan that helps them obtain optimal results for themselves and make them feel better. And I think this is really where everything gets connected again, the, the value-based healthcare, the digitalization and, and the cooperation. And we are, we're hearing all kinds of things about big tech companies and antitrust and opportunities for competition. So this can only improve the healthcare when we increase competition and people basically voting with their feet. So absolutely essential. Now, kind of a fundamental behind all of this, Marina, is the need to improve health and digital literacy. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the things that the care teams can do, not only at the patient level, but across the continuum of the treatment uh, ecosystem for everybody just to be more aware of, uh, you know, and to become more literate. Yeah, I think it's, it's, for me, it's the current new bottleneck. I mean, it's an old bottleneck, but it's a new, new because we're more aware of it. You started our conversation with raising awareness. So I think I have to say, I went to my last two doctor's appointments I had with my own doctors who take care of me, who were readily taking notes with pen and paper. And I said, guys, I just wrote this book. Can I ask you a question? Why do you not use electronic patient chart? And I felt very empathetic with them because they said, oh my God, Marina, you are so right. But you know what? I'm ashamed to say it, but it's so hard for me to write on a keyboard. I did, I'm not a digital native. I didn't grow up this way. On, on, an, on, an, on a device, it's even worse because the keyboard is even smaller. And I kind of don't, I can't type with 10 fingers. It's basic stuff like this. And then obviously on the patient side, you know, out of our three mega trends of the future, one is aging. And so look at our own parents or, or grandparents' generation. How easy is it for them to use a smartphone? You know, my, in my uh, family environment, the 80 and 90 years old, they really have a hard time and they don't use it actually. None of them has a smartphone. So actually, I think it is not necessarily educating them, but then it's also the role of the caregiver. And that's again, a societal debate because how do we compensate and reward caregivers? Right now, nine out of 10 are doing this for free, right? So, but they're playing more roles. So I think the literacy, uh, both for the provider and the patient 
uh, is key. And I think this is, by the way, where pharmaceutical can and the private life science sector can do a fantastic job in, in creating programs that help, you know, with the literacy, with the literacy of their quote unquote customers, but which would be a value generating uh, investment um, to accompany their product launch or their, their new therapy. So I think, again, a great example for cooperation across the five Ps. We have fantastic health plans in, in Europe, uh, so insurers who actually walk the talk and drive the change on this. They really do uh, educational workshops and sessions for free where people can, you know, subscribe and learn and, and do these things, have a really good service team where people with a hotline where people can call where people sit with them really virtually over the screen and say hey i walk you through the system how it works and the app and so that they really learn so i think there's a there's a phenomenal uh, opportunity for the private sector for accompanying investments to help with literacy and i think the whole other thing we could talk about um is, is the trust piece um, to let go your, of your data and electronic medical um, uh, charts and data capture. But I think to stick with the literacy, um, great opportunity for co-creation and partnering in, in lifting that literacy. It's low hanging yeah. fruit in my mind. Yeah, hundred percent. It's so absolutely essential uh, for getting any of this other stuff um, even going. Uh, another core tenant around systems innovation thinking um, at the end of the day, everything goes where the money flows. And so we really have to take a very clear pathway and understanding of what is the incentivizations. And you said something that was so eloquent, and I wonder if somebody's going to go off and, and think about this, but an opportunity to democratize health so healthcare. So as opposed to just giving money to the same healthcare stakeholders, how are we elevating the role of the caregiver and now actually streamlining? So now you have, instead of you know, thousands of caregivers, you know, of, of healthcare workers, you now have thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands. And how can they participate in the incentivization model? Tell us a little bit about the reform. Um, we hear a lot as well about the amount of GDP that healthcare, and we're talking about expensive drugs in the future, rare diseases, oncologics, immunotherapies, CAR-Ts, all these things that are stacked and they're merged and they're, you know, used with everything else and add on top of that, the digital therapeutics. How on earth is this burgeoning cost going to happen and transpire? Are things going to have to fall off the tracks? Do pharma companies have to redefine their business model? So uh, I know there's a lot there, but the question ultimately comes down to is what can this incentivization model look like for continuous discovery? And how do we continue to pay for these really expensive products? Yeah, so I, I hear uh, a bunch of different questions in that question. So I'm trying to <laughs> dis disentangle a little bit. So um, the uh, just in terms of new incentive and reward models, let me start with that uh, in terms of value-based healthcare, where I said new systems will pay, you could say pay for performance, performance, but it's really pay for outcomes with the insurer, the patient, and the doctor and the hospital being actually accountable. And that happens in many places. Old Street Health is one. I think in uh, in the Netherlands, the diabetes model is one. They have actually just signed a 10 year contract for uh, diabetes actually to sit together and say, what are the optimal outcomes that's done in co-creation in that same team? And then they're rewarded if they meet those planned outcomes. And then there's a bonus and a malice system if you hit them or you, you underwrite them. So I think this is these things actually do work. And I, that's one of my core 
keeps it's, it's warm to, uh, close to my heart to let people know this is not mere theory this is happening you you just you know we need to spread the word on those things that are happening if we say in terms of how do we can how can we keep innovation up and great progress you you're talking about cancer therapies about gene therapies for rare diseases uh, immune therapy digital therapeutics for the future etc so i'm i'm saying that we don't have an issue of lack of money and lack of resources in healthcare because if we look across in the US, European countries, rich countries like Switzerland or others, across the board, about 50% of our healthcare budget, which by the way, in the US is about 4 trillion US dollars. In Switzerland, for example, 80 billion Swiss francs. Up to 50% of that dollar in franc is wasted. That means in the US, up to 2 trillion US dollars is wasted money. Which, which will say, people ask me, but what is waste, Rorina? Well, it is dollars spent with no improved outcomes for patients, mm -hmm. with total inefficiency in the system. And we all have examples of redundancy and, and waste where, where duplication of tests and, and inefficient treatments given. Or worse, I had another example with my family member, 90-year-old, had a very expensive treatment prescribed. They are not taking it. That's wasted money. It's mm -hmm. like the prescription is done, but the patient actually doesn't take it. So mm -hmm. I think all there are a zillion examples why where we lose cost, where we lose money in the system. Out of the 100% of a healthcare expenditure, 10 to 20% are prescription drug. So I'm not saying that some prescription drugs may be overpriced. I have no idea. I'm not a pricing expert, but that is a, that is a topic that needs to be resolved, but it's not the topic to fix our healthcare problems. So I think if we say we want to keep innovation up, we have to collectively work on eliminating our inefficiencies and waste, and they exist in all parts of the system. And because over 80% are not related to drugs, it is so complex, nobody looks at them because it's so hard to talk about. It's so much easier just to say, well, that one drug costs too much, which is maybe true, but it's not the solution to our problem for the other 80% that are well, badly managed. So I think it, we, if we want to maintain the innovation and great progress and have new therapies and medicines being developed, we have to collectively do two things. One is, um, as I just said, you know, collectively work on how we can um, uh, eliminate our inefficiencies. Digital is one of the big tools to do that combined with value-based healthcare. And then it is really around um, having that conversation, what do we value most, right? Yeah, it's like beautiful. as a society and, and how do we, is 2 million the right price tag or not? I think it's a societal debate. We need a reform of our reimbursement models because with a payer that only holds a budget for a year, well, you can't pay for life-saving therapy. So this is again, a five P conversation. The policymaker has to have a, a word and, and, and civic society. It's absolutely essential. Um, part of this whole dialogue and at the end of the day, accelerated change is gonna be based on data. We need data. We have data lakes. Some of it is being shared. A lot of it isn't. How are we going to get our heads around and have this conversation around shareability, um, bioethics, uh, what should be, you know, secure and data privacy? Who's who should be spearheading this conversation between the five P's and what should that discussion be about? Yeah, I can see three levels. Um, so, so one is really around 
uh, uh, the literacy that we said before, because I think in literacy, not necessarily in the usability, but in the understanding. So we need to do education and do workshops and take people along in understanding what is that cyber world? Where do they data? Where do their personal data go when we talk about data transparency on the one side and data privacy on the other side? So I think there and there's a great example in Vienna, for example, in Austria, they're building a public uh, academy for, for actually the, the, the lay public and experts and policymakers to have those conversations and to provide a platform for people where they can discuss and learn and understand what is electronic data capture and what happens with my data. The second, I think we need a core, even beyond the 5P, I think we need to have that cooperation between AI experts. Um, so the engineers, it's the software engineers and developers, but also the hardware engineers and developers. Um, because I think what we are learning now are federated AI models where, you know, you don't have to share raw data. You, you share actually increasingly the model and the algorithm and then kind of mature the algorithm in their training sets in other places. So I think there are ways where we have wrong assumptions and wrong understanding on what AI and ML can do for helping us becoming more efficient and keep innovation up. So I think those are, those are really the important pieces. And then lastly, I should say it's again, I think around society because we know some countries are much, much more digitized than others. I think the, the range is huge with Estonia, for example, probably on the top end with 99% of the whole society being um, digitized. And then we have other countries like Denmark, at least in, in healthcare, where for, for decades they had electronic medical uh, records, so data capture. Uh, I mean, they have other issues to solve, but I think, and then we have maybe countries like Germany or so that's somewhere in the middle uh, or the US, um, but, but many countries still need to catch up on digitalization. So I yeah. think um, it is, it is uh, on those three levers that I would see it. Sort of like the technology luddites of, of today, right? Uh, the old printing press and people breaking those down, but so absolutely essential and, and key ideas here. And I guess my my last question on on this all, you know, because there's a lot of people who, who are from pharma that listen to the show, and you know, we need to have these conversations, but people are afraid at the leadership level of being disruptive, of you know, <laughs> really getting in there and and doing these negotiations. What sort of tips would you provide to people of initiating and sustaining these kinds of conversations moving forward? This is a this is an awesome question because it brings it down to practicalities and you know what can I do tomorrow? I think what I always recommend and what I've seen in, in the teams I had the you know the pleasure to work with in the past is to really as a leader what we can do is to ask questions for innovative ideas. And I think many, many organizations start doing this. Some even have dedicated innovation teams, which I sometimes find odd because innovation should be with everybody. It should not be like with one leader or one team, but sometimes it's a means to an end for a transition period to carve out that time because people need quality time without a dedicated project plan and deadline where they need to deliver because this is not how creation and creativity occurs because it has a strong creative component. Um, and, and really kind of carve out and, 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 and empower your teams to do so. And then from a team from the bottom up and grassroots perspective is think about, really think for yourself, what is this one thing I would love in my workflow, you mentioned workflows before, or in my customer engagement, or in my clinical studies, or in my IITs, or in my sales account, that I would love to see changed. 
and then basically recommend, I think many companies have these little boxes where you can digitally or analog drop your idea and then just kind of pursue and see is there one or two colleagues that can join you in that. And then knock on the door of that one leader that said, hey, you spoke at your last um, town hall. You said you empower you know, and you encourage um, creativity to really hold them accountable and get a meeting with that leader in their books. And I can tell you, they will be very open to receive you and have that conversation and say, well, we need two hours a week to work on this. Can you please free out, up that time? And I'm sure one out of two times, two out of three times, they will say yes. So I think it's the courage to take the first step. I think we're not lacking ideas. We're lacking leadership and our own courage to do the first step and do a pilot and talk to your colleague to run the pilot. I love it. It always starts with putting one, one foot in front of the other, one tiny little steps and the brilliance around compounding interest is the best thing that's ever happened. So little things today can make a huge difference tomorrow. So thank you so much, Verena. This was an outstanding conversation. I have to be honest, I was putting a lot of questions because I could keep asking you more. The book is chock full of fantastic information. If anybody, again, please pick the book up. It takes five to tango from competition to cooperation in healthcare. We will be leaving Verena's contact details, her website, if you want to purchase a copy of the book. I really recommend it. Um, she's also available for consulting with her 5P Healthcare Solutions Company. Great ideas that were shared here today, and this is what she focuses on. She also actually has a podcast, and we'll be sharing that information as well. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd encourage you to also check out impetusdigital.com. This is exactly the kind of thing that we do in our platform, both asynchronously and synchronously. We bring the five Ps together. We have the conversations about the policy and the medicines and the change and the business models. How do we move these conversations forward so that we can provocatively change healthcare? Uh, thanks everybody for your time. We really would appreciate if you can like and subscribe or better still leave us a review on, our, on iTunes. Thank you, Verena, for a fantastic conversation. And we thank also you, thank you. And we wish everybody a wonderful day ahead. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business to business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.